0: Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. It's Doug Cunnington here. And in this episode, I'm going to answer several questions about buying a website and some of the due diligence process. This is from Stephen, And a few weeks ago, Stephen featured uh, one of his sub questions in here about buying a site that's under $10,000 and where to buy them because some of the well-known brokers and marketplaces out there like Empire Flippers and I can hardly get that out. Empire Flippers and Effie International, they don't carry these sort of lower price sites. So you can go to Flippa and sometimes the the pricing is a little unusual. It's hard to decipher where the prices are coming from. And uh, another place, which I had not mentioned back to Stephen is just Facebook groups. So as I'm, uh, you know, chatting with more people that run Facebook groups, I do see in here that there are several face- Facebook groups that are basically about buying and selling sites. And a lot of times they are a variety of price ranges. Some of them are, you know, well under 10K. So we're going to go through many, many questions here. Thanks, Stephen, for all the show ideas you actually gave me more questions that I even know the answer to, but I'll struggle through it with everyone. And if you actually know the answer to some of these questions or have a different experience, I would love it if you emailed me at feedback at doug.show. And then I'll be happy to give you a shout out, just like Steven here, especially if you're giving me better information. Now, the truth is I haven't purchased that many websites. Slowly over time, I'm, I am I realized that I've actually accumulated more then I, then I realized, but I often don't go through a broker. So I've only sold sites on empire flippers. I've never purchased one. I bought one very small site off of Flippa, basically a starter site, just so I could see what the process looked like. And that was, you know, four years ago, five years ago. I, don't, I barely even remember this site was pretty much garbage. I mean, someone just kind of put up, um, I don't know if it was, uh, the PLR, the private label rights kind of content or if it was just generically written, quickly thrown together content where the grammar was okay, no misspelled words, but it was largely like not valuable (laughs) and no one was searching for any of the content, any of the keywords, it was basically garbage. But I went through the process and I mean, the site was like under $100, I think. So anyway, we're gonna move through some of these questions. I do need to give a shout out to Ezoic and the site speed accelerator, which makes your site load faster. It helps uh, basically lazy loading, image optimization, CSS rendering, minification. You can get a free seven-day trial and a guarantee your Google page speed insight score will be over 80 once you go through the the week trial there. So pretty easy to configure. And I've mentioned this uh, a few times. You should use the dns integration not the wordpress plugin you'll get a better experience technically the wordpress plugin will do you know most of the things but it's more optimized if you're integrating via the dns and you can i think you get a little bit more functionality through the cdn and caching and that sort of thing i recently saw a question on the youtube side where someone didn't know how to change the DNS or maybe they tried to change the DNS. And then they actually wrote like an angry comment, like, you know, some sort of cussing at me and they said it was impossible to change their DNS. So you should check with your registrar and or your hosting company on some of those details. So if you don't know how to do it, they're usually you're going to find support in one of those two places. And quick shout out to Ezoic and Website Wars. It is an actual game show and there were prizes awarded. I battled my friend Ron Stefanski, who's been on the show a couple of times. It's a uh, pretty cool little game show. I don't have the description here and I'm terrible at describing things like that, but I think it was uh, kind of based on deal or no deal and the price is right. And uh, Ron and I battle it out. So it's pretty cool. It premiered not too long ago at the time that you're listening to this, but I'll put a link in the description so that you can check it out. And it's hopefully entertaining to you, but it's also educational. Um, We talk about some of the details and some of the metrics that you can, you know, observe on a website and kind of have an understanding on like how things are going. So pretty fun. And thanks to for having me on that show pretty fun stuff. Okay. Let's get on to some of the questions from Steven here. So he just kind of listed them out. I think, uh, you know, part of the time these kind of flow in a uh, sort of chronological way and other times uh, they may be out of place, but I'm just going to, you know, go through the list here, maybe jump back and forth. My brain works like that often. So Steven says, do you get access to the back end of a website during the due diligence process? And if so, what would you look for? What are positive or negative things that you might see? And examples would be maybe too many people have access, authors, editors, contributors, maybe some articles have a lot of post revisions or does any of that stuff even matter? So generally, you probably won't get back in access to a website unless there's some specific reason to do so. Now, that said, I've actually received back in access to a website before I purchased it because I wanted to take a look around, but I asked specifically. And the other thing is I was buying from someone I knew. It was a contact, actually a student of mine from a course, and I just wanted to check out and see you know, what was going on as far as the number of plugins and a couple of other details. So I think that's kind of unusual. Again, it's possible, you know, for that's something that's important to you, that um, you could ask for that kind of access there. Because I knew the person, they actually gave me admin access, which is highly unusual. So I would probably... I would probably say that if you did get some sort of access, it wouldn't be admin access and you probably wouldn't be able to see much if you don't have admin access. So an alternative, a safer alternative for the owner, the seller of the site would be just to share their screen, maybe on a video call, and then they can show you what's going on. You can ask for permission to record it so that you can go back and refer to that video You can have them go through certain areas. Now, as far as too many people having access, I wouldn't really worry about it unless there are administrators in that list. So administrators, of course, would be able to change everything on your website and really have a lot of power. But as far far as authors and uh, contributors, they really don't have too much power. Editors have a little bit more, but basically, as soon as you have access to a site, you can deactivate all those and perhaps you could just make them, um, just a, v- a very low level of access or remove them altogether if you wanted to. But most of the time I would probably just hop in there, make them a, uh, like a no, um, no access, I think is one of the, the choices there. And another thing Steven asks is if uh, posts have a lot of revisions, I wouldn't really worry about that either. It does potentially bog down your database, but that's something that you can clean up and largely trivial. The main thing, as I mentioned before, is I would look at the number of plugins, what plugins are used. You may know if you've listened to a lot of the episodes, I'm not a fan of a large number of plugins, so if you just get the list there, then you... Be able to assess how important they are are they critical to the site is there is there some functionality that you really need to have so again you can see that without actually getting access you can just look over someone's shoulder on a call next what information does the buyer provide so that's a it's a big one and potentially i'll miss a couple here i didn't go download um you know some checklist or anything like that so The biggest things that I look for are the traffic numbers, Google Analytics, and I also look for the revenue, right? So for both of those, you uh, can get it pretty easily. So the owner can give you Google Analytics read-only access. They can also give you Search Console read-only access super easy to do they can add you on there and remove you if you decide not to buy the site so not really a big deal revenue obviously super important so you'd want to get reports and just sort of proof of actually earning the money you may even have them show you, uh, for example, if it's uh Amazon affiliate, you may have them log on to their Amazon account and show you, you know, the reports, pull some live reports so that you can actually see that it's not doctored. It's not a screenshot that can be altered. It is literally, you know, their account that they're logging into. If they're earning money from multiple sources, of course, you would want to see verification for each one of those sources. Sometimes reports are not robust. Sometimes they don't give a ton of information. And, um, you know, one other foolproof way is to actually see the the statements of the deposits going into their account. So depending on the level of revenue and some of the other uh, factors, as far as the payments go, that could be, um, you know, something that you require next question is what additional information should the seller ask for so expenses are super important um, that would be one of the key components if um, you know for example let's say it's a drop shipping site although I don't think you're asking about that Stephen but they could be running a lot of ads and it could be you know, a huge amount of money and it makes the profit much lower than if it was all organic traffic. Now for affiliate sites, you may have a few VAs on board that are doing ongoing work all the time. That could be writers. It could be editors. It could be a Pinterest or other social media VA, um, basically helping out in whatever capacity could be someone monitoring emails and that sort of things, that sort of thing. Next, how do you find discrepancies in claimed versus actual numbers? So, as I mentioned before, if you are on a call with the person and you have them go through the reports, pulling live reports, you can ask them to, you know, pick specific dates just so you can see everything. You can record the video Again, you got to get their permission, but you can record the video so that you can go and, um, you know, review in more detail in case they're going through a little fast. But on such a call, that's your opportunity, of course, to spend a lot of time, ask questions, ask them to go back and, you know, really make sure things look how they're supposed to look. Next question is, can I back out of a sale without having to pay a fee? Now that depends on the specific marketplace or broker or whoever you're dealing with. So if you're just, you know, dealing one-on-one, you met somebody in a Facebook group, it's pretty likely that you're not going to have to pay any fee. It's just one person working with another. It's kind of like Craigslist or, uh, you know, anything else where it's just, you know, one-on-one if you're working with a broker it all depends on their specific situation and basically their rules in terms of service so i'm not really sure i think they probably have it um you know pretty low pretty low risk for a potential buyer so sometimes you may have to pay like a deposit to get more information and get hooked up so they they know you're serious about working with the company and actually purchasing a site like many deposits in this sort of situation, it's kind of like earnest money in that um, they just want to make sure that you're not wasting their time. So with that said, again, it, it could be refundable. It's probably refundable, but definitely check ahead of time. And that should be listed and disclosed in a very easy to way easy way for you to, to ask and figure it out or, or know it even before you send over any money. Next, how do I get the website transferred to my host? So a lot of the sort of technical stuff is totally up to you. So if you're buying from, say, uh, Empire Flippers or through Empire Flippers, they handle that. They handle the transition and help you out. And I don't know the, the timeline. Some of these things take a little longer depending on the complexity and size of the site. Of course, if you're buying from an individual, you two will need to talk about that. And I've sold um a couple sites and purchased a couple sites just one-on-one. And I'm slightly technical. I understand the transition and migration process. So I pretty much handled it. And it was a, a huge help to people that I've sold sites to because it um I I knew the specifics of my website. So I knew very easily how to for example change all the affiliate tracking IDs and not miss any of them. So I knew a very fast way to do it instead of doing it manually. Sure. If um, someone's using a plugin, right back to plugins, if someone's using a plugin to manage their affiliate links, it may be very easy. You may have to change the affiliate link in one specific spot. And it's very straightforward. If they're doing some other um, affiliate link management, maybe the tracking id needs to be changed every time it's used so that's something that you would have to assess and it could actually be a significant amount of work let's say you're buying a website that has 500 posts and most of those posts have some affiliate tracking id in there you would have to go through and change all those so again that's not that's not a trivial exercise, and it could take a very long time to do it manually. Or if you can do it in a systematic way, by say updating the database, which is what I did, and that's what I've done uh, multiple times for these sort of migrations. It may take um, just a few minutes to do, but the, sort of the um, the expertise that a person needs to make those database changes is relatively high. You can mess things up really bad when you're messing with the database. So not to say you can't make a backup ahead of time and, you know, get as, as many tries as you want to, cause you could always restore the backup, but the transition is either managed by the broker or marketplace, or you and the buyer and seller who, whatever party you are, you have to figure out who's doing what. So you have to figure that out and figure out like how much work it would be moving on how and when do I pay? So again, this is a few different ways this can go. So if you're working with say empire flippers, they, you know what? I haven't, I haven't checked recently, but as far as I know, they sort of serve as the escrow at that point. So the buyer would send the money to empire flippers and then this yeah that's right and then the seller turns over the website the buyer has some amount of time probably five to say 14 days or so to verify the traffic and earnings are what they expect them to be based on all the previous information right? So you have a few days to check things out and make sure it wasn't fake traffic and make sure the earnings are coming in like they're supposed to. And then once the buyer gives the go ahead, then the empire flippers or the escrow service will release the money over to the seller, right? So pretty straightforward. The escrow just provides protection for both the buyer and the seller just to make sure um, everyone has a a little bit of recourse. And if there's some issue, for example, let's say the buyer sees that the traffic is half of what it was reported, um, that could be a major issue, right? So all of a sudden, traffic is not what was reported. And then they essentially can say, no, this is not what I expected. And I want to back out. Now, escrow, if you, there's services out there, by the way, that do escrow for you. And if um, you use escrow, again, which provides protection uh, from the various risks that are out there for both parties, it'll be some fee. Could be a few hundred dollars. Sometimes it's a percentage. And I haven't used an, an escrow other than the empire flipper situation that I mentioned before. So a couple of the other websites, um, larger-ish one that I purchased, actually it's in the under 10K region, just like you're looking for, Stephen. I knew the person, again, this was a student and someone that I've known for a few years. And I just said, hey, is it cool if I pay you half up front and then you transfer it over, I'll do the migration, I'll check it out for a few days and then I'll send over the rest of the money. It was totally fine. So that's what we did. Another website um, situation. When I sold a site, I actually had, again, a high amount of trust because I am a a person with this podcast, a YouTube channel, a blog, and I have a good reputation. So we didn't use an escrow. It was a very expensive site. And they just wired the money over to my account. There was no escrow. There was no like verification. I showed the person, uh, you know, several of the reports, just like I mentioned, I gave them read access on Google analytics, Google search console. We went through several reports over on the Amazon side and a few other places. And they literally just wired me the money, um, on the, you know, the closing date essentially. And I sent over the site and everything worked on the transition. As I mentioned, I was handling the migration. Part of the part of the deal was that. And then I just pushed forward with that, did all the work that I needed to over the course of a couple days, and it was good to go. So there was no no issue at all with not using the escrow, but you do have to have a high amount of trust. It saved us, you know, hundreds of dollars by not using the escrow. If you're just working with someone you don't know (laughs) and they don't know you, escrow is probably a very cheap way to have some insurance and recourse if there's any issues at all next should i have an attorney read the purchase agreement probably you probably should have that um, expert in your corner to check it out i would recommend someone that has experience with online businesses otherwise they may have the wrong context and have you put in other irrelevant stuff into the contract that said i didn't use um uh, any sort of official uh legalese purchase agreement for uh you know one or two smaller transactions again where i knew the person and literally, there was no contract. There, was a, there were a few emails going back and forth <laughs> about the details. And then we sent the websites and or the money, depending on who we were. On a larger site that I sold, the one where the person just wired me the money, they had an attorney. But I, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to read the purchase agreement. And I don't know why? Actually, I was like, I I don't know an attorney um, specifically. And I was like, you know what? This is kind of straightforward. I'm just going to read this. It's about 20 pages long. I went through it and found a bunch of shit that was completely irrelevant. It was a closing document for almost like a piece of physical real estate. Like if someone was buying a rental home or something like that. So I went through and I was like, Hey, this is irrelevant. Can we change this? And in a lot of ways, I just went through and tried to simplify and prune the purchase agreement. There are probably many standard ones that you can find and and buy out there from uh, lawyers or other contract related websites, So you can snag one of those if you want to. There are probably some that you could buy that are specific for websites. And I probably, if I wanted to, I probably could have said, you know what, we're going to use this one here, or I really want to use this one here because it's made for the websites. And, you know, the attorney could have fought back with me. But again, for whatever reason, I guess I felt like it was fairly low risk and there was no... Um, there was no language in there that I felt was unfair. It seemed like, you know, they were covering bases in an appropriate way. And, you know, in that contract, there may be, there may be specifics around earnouts, other, uh, details. If there was something sort of unusual with the deal, if it wasn't just like a straight cash transaction at one time. And sometimes with these bigger sites, you will have an earnout period just to sort of spread the risk a little bit over back over to the seller so that the buyer isn't, you know, just holding all that on their shoulders. And I, I knew that was a, that was a reasonable thing for me to do at the time. And I think you just have to look at where your website's at, um, maybe any sort of trends that are happening. If there was a recent algorithm update, all of these little factors can come into play and you may have to really just negotiate and find something that works for you and the seller. How do I find an attorney with experience in these transactions? So I would probably go to some of the Facebook groups where buying and selling websites is the main topic and just poke around, ask and just see if anyone has any uh, recommendations for you. I don't know how to find someone specifically. But once you start asking around, you could probably find someone and it won't be a big deal. And then there's a, there's a truck backing up. So if you hear beeping, that is what it is. Okay. Moving on. This one's sort of an interesting question. I haven't seen this um, out there, but are some domain extensions more expensive than others? I saw a site making hundred dollars per month for sale And it was $1,100, but it had had a domain, a TLD, that was about $2,500 per year, and that seems crazy to me. (laughs) That seems super weird. So yes, some domain extensions are different prices than others. I would say I would probably skip the super expensive ones, or if it is part of the you know profit and expenses and you know exactly what's going on and there's a valuable reason to have that level of pricing for an extension then maybe you stick with it but for me i think that's a little crazy and i would probably skip it for that i I can't imagine why that is a really great idea no clue no clue next If I already have a website in the same niche, what impact can an NDA have on future content of my existing website, assuming the domain name is revealed by the seller? So you would need to first find a lawyer and then consult them because I don't really know what would happen. That's kind of a weird situation. And, you know, the NDA, the non-disclosure agreement is... um, you know, a piece of the puzzle that I can't comment on too much. So it let's say I have several websites, which I actually do. And the NDA is a non-disclosure agreement. And that means that, um, you know, you're not supposed to disclose in whatever other details are in that agreement, but you're not supposed to disclose any of the information that you have learned in any capacity to, you know, outside um, parties. So with that said, you, you could still have a website that is directly in competition with your website, right? You could have the website and the one that you looked at is the one that, and now they're doing, they're doing work right outside the, <laughs> the door here. Okay, so I'm going to refocus, but essentially the NDA is you're not disclosing that information and maybe other stuff um, that you've learned by taking a look at the website. Now that said that is different than a non-compete. Non-compete is what it sounds like where you're not gonna compete with um, the website, and usually that's in place for the seller. So you may say, I don't want you to compete in this same niche for a certain amount of time. It could be two, three years, something like that, and you can make it kind of specific. So on the NDA front, the NDA doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do anything. It just means that you shouldn't tell anyone things that you learn by having a look at that website. So it shouldn't really impact your future content or anything like that. You probably won't be signing a non-compete clause or, or any sort of agreement. So that means it doesn't really matter. And I will tell you that if you own a website in a specific niche, you may be more likely to buy more websites in that niche because you're already in it, you have an understanding, you may have VAs that you work with that already know the niche because you're working with them. You may be able to buy a website that is a competitor and then merge it with your website. So this is a common practice and I think maybe you meant a non-compete, not an NDA. So that said, little side tangent here, occasionally I do uh, one-on-one coaching and I've had one or two people try to get me to sign an NDA and a non-compete. Actually, sometimes they, they tell me to sign an NDA and sometimes non compete. Again, this has only happened once or twice and I told them, no, I wasn't gonna sign it because as you're getting at here, and now that I'm saying it out loud, I, I remember that the person did try to get me to sign both of those, an NDA and a non-compete. And I was like, no, that, I, I'm not gonna do that. Um, I operate on a high level and I you know, have a lot of trust and I, I work with a lot of people. So basically I can't sign a non-compete because um, I may already own websites in that space. I may purchase or acquire or be a partner in that space because opportunities come my way occasionally and sometimes I go for it and I didn't want to have my hands tied from a 1 hour coaching session that is uh you know just a one time thing have my hands tied on the things that I could do for 2 to 3 years it's just not worth it there's no exchange of value that's high enough to uh, tie my hands like that so anyway I was like I'm not going to do that and in, you know, if, if that's a deal breaker, then you know, sorry, we, we can't work together. And you know, I've only had that happen a couple of times. And the person realized after I explained exactly what I mentioned, they said, "Oh, I see what you mean. That I was, I'm just, you know, I'm really protective of my ideas." Blah blah blah. Which, you know, I've probably I haven't said it recently, but I mean, ideas are super easy, right? People can have ideas. It's the execution and sticking with something for a long time that is very hard. Quick note: I do want to thank the Niche Website Builders uh, for this Q and A segment. And really, I'm just answering questions this whole episode, so I'm just going to give them a shout out. Niche Website Builders is the one-stop shop for um, affiliate marketing agency services that you might need. I've been uh, basically running with them for a few months now. They've been working on a shotgun skyscraper campaign for me seen really good results of uh i'm trying to think the last time i gave an update but i don't think there's anything new i have 15 backlinks the average domain rating from hrefs is 61.2 i think so i'm hoping we're going to get you know a higher volume of links as well it's not as many links as i was expecting but it's it's uh, more powerful links these are pretty you know Big websites. So it's pretty cool. And, you know, niche website builders is run by affiliate marketers. They weren't happy with the services that they were able to get. So they were like, hey, we're going to start our own agency and see how it goes. So moving on to more questions here. How do I interpret and value the analytics to make an offer? So typically, you're going to be around 30 times the monthly profits. So, 30 times the monthly profits. So, you would have to take a look at the revenue and then, of course, subtract the expenses. You may have to double check and say, hey, I just want to make sure all of these expenses are accounted for. That includes tools that are used, it includes hosting the domain registration and the annual renewal. So if you see that a domain extension is super expensive, then you you probably would want to skip it, you know, like the one you asked about before. So you want to make sure you understand if there's any VAs that are doing ongoing work, if there's ongoing link building campaign or anything that's happening. Now, some people will do content sprints and not really count that, content sprint is an ongoing expense i don't buy or sell a ton of sites so i'm actually okay with that some people may define it a little differently but like i said i'm pretty much okay with that because that's what i would do on my site maybe for six months i get um you know a a decent amount of content published six months is actually long it would usually be more like two to three months i'd order a ton of content publish it all at once and then just kind of let it sit so you could use that as a negotiating piece as you know, part of the offer, like, oh, well, you're actually spending a, a decent amount. And if we spread out those expenses over the course of the year, then actually your profits are a little bit lower than what you're reporting. And that could be you know, up for debate. It could be a negotiating piece that you use along the way. Now, as far as making an offer, I mean that's a whole art of uh, just negotiation. So again, you you have a lot of little thumb screws here, and it could be like purchasing a uh, car or a house or something like that, where there's you know a couple couple things wrong. You know, there's a couple leaky pipes, there's a couple issues that need to be fixed. The roof. Um, is in good shape now, but you may have to get it replaced in the next few years. So you can like call out all the issues that you see um, just to, just to give yourself a little leverage. And that's a good idea. I think some people may not like the negotiation process, but I've gotten to a point where I do enjoy it. But uh, Part of it is you have to be able to walk away, right? You have to, you have to be able to leave the table. And I've when I've purchased cars, by the way, I've walked away uh, every time. You you always got to leave the lot. You w- you want the car salesperson to chase you as you're driving away. Like that's, <laughs> that's the goal. I haven't bought a car in a while, but that's what you want. Okay, moving on, a few more questions here. What about Google Trends to find seasonality? Yeah, so you could check that out for... The, the main niche overall and maybe some of the specific keywords and posts, but I wouldn't worry about it too, too much. You probably can see the seasonality through the analytics, potentially through the earnings if the you know historical information is long enough. And g- going back to one of the very early questions, if possible, I'd love to have as much historical information as possible. If someone has had a site for five years, if you can see all five years of that information, that's fantastic. It gives you kind of an idea over the course of a very long amount of time. And you could see, oh, this site seems to have impacts from uh, these algorithm updates over the past several years or not. Some sites just seem to dodge, dodge the bullet every time. Not many of them. It seems like a lot of sites do get get roped in occasionally, but some sites seem to always like miss the negative impact of an algorithm update. For the next question, uh, what information can the potential buyer not see? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Going back to some of the details on the offer and figuring out how to, you know, value the site. Sometimes you won't get all the information on the expenses because the seller forgets that they're using a specific tool, for example, and then you realize, oh, that tool costs you know twenty bucks a month. If you put if you add in a few of those, you can end up with a, you know more significant issue where it's a few hundred dollars off per month, which is a lot. I would say that's pretty unusual, but I would ask a lot of questions about any of the work that has gone on, any of the work that is going on so that you have an idea of those expenses. Next, how do I know the seller won't go and build another site just like it or already has one? So that's where the non-compete comes in. Now, in reality, and part of the reason why in some of my more casual deals that are under 10,000, where I'm dealing with someone that I know, I trust them, they trust me, I mean, the fact is I'm not going to try to sue someone that lives across um, the world. And that was the situation. I'm probably going to buy a site um, for too long coming up soon. And the person is uh, not in the U.S. So it's highly likely. I mean, no no one tried to do, do wrong to me, but I mean, I don't want to be in a litigation situation where I'm trying to sue someone. So. I'm trying to work with people that I really trust. I have a relationship with just in general, or I'm working through someone like empire flippers because they have uh, the contracts and some other things in, in place. And I know, you know, empire flippers sure wouldn't want to have uh, disappointed parties on the buyer or seller side, especially buyers and sellers that have a blog and podcast. So, I mean, there's a decent amount of not protection, but it lowers the risk a little bit. So that said, those non-compete uh, clauses that are in the, these purchase agreements, usually um, people try not to screw other folks over, but it could be the case that they they may already have a site like that. Um, if, you, if you do trust the person, I mean, you can ask them and say, hey, do you have any other sites in this niche? Um, and then, you know, the, they hopefully will tell you the truth if they kind of kind of dance around the question, you know, that could be a red flag. And I find being direct and just asking questions, not asking questions around the topic, but just being super direct, asking the question in as few words as possible and then let them talk is a great way to do it. And, you know, I would do that potentially in writing via email. I would also probably ask during whatever, you know, video call or whatever, sort of meeting you're having, even if it's not video, right? You could still ask the question and going back to the negotiation, dealing with silence and just letting it sit is a very good technique. If you can just let there be silence, if you let the other person talk, they may just keep rambling on a little bit longer. Also, if you're buying a used car, that's pretty good too, because they they want you to uh, either reveal too much information or just ramble on and and give things up that you shouldn't. So in that negotiation, remember silence is good on a actual, like live call on email. Obviously you want to reply back quickly. You know, that's a good idea. Next, what protections do the buyer and seller have and what is the recourse? So I've alluded to a lot of this already. So part of it is uh, using escrow. For the actual transaction, or have a party that serves as escrow, like Empire Flippers. As far as the recourse, that'll be baked in to the purchase agreement. That'll be in the NDA. That'll be in the non-compete clause, if there is one. So it's all contractual at that point. And when I didn't have a contract, I potentially could have been in a situation, you know, again with these under ten thousand dollars sites where maybe i paid half the money the traffic wasn't what i expected i wanted a refund and the person that i trusted for you know for whatever reason maybe they could have said you know what i'm keeping this money and you you get the site but you know i'm not going to give the money back so at that point i potentially have probably enough information via email and some of the other agreements where, you know, there's just enough in writing in emails where I potentially could try to sue the person. But again, that's not really my goal. It potentially would be more expensive to try to sue someone for a small dollar site than just to, you know, call it a sunk cost and a lesson learned. Next. And so many questions, Stephen, you know, kudos for asking so many. I think you sent me a couple more with, uh, you know, big ideas, not as many questions, but big ideas that I can have for a full episode. So last couple questions here. And thanks again to Niche Website Builders. You can save 10% on content if you go with one of their content plans. They have done for you sites so you can get additional content. 10% additional content if you buy one of those. And if you do the Shotgun Skyscraper campaigns, then you save 10%. So check them out and thanks for uh, supporting the show. Building new versus buying. So I often recommend people build a new site just to learn the mechanics of it. There's a lot of good skills that you learn by building, you know, brand new site start to finish. You potentially could, you know, make a couple mistakes. Things are not going to be perfect, but you learn a lot along the way. As far as buying the site, I mean, if you have the capital available and you're willing to put in the time to learn some of the mechanics, then I think buying a site is a great way just to, you know, skip the sandbox. You're buying an asset that you know is already earning money. Or if you're building a new site, even if you're following, you know, everything perfectly, you, you never have the guarantee that it's going to get traffic and earn money. Usually people can work it out if they are trying to improve, if they're following a good framework and blueprint. Usually building a brand new site is not going to completely flop and there's always some intrinsic value in either the content and or link building. And hopefully, I mean, you end up having a site that is getting traffic and earning money. But when you buy a site that is already getting traffic and earning money and you know it has been for a little while you kind of have more security in that it's going to continue probably getting traffic and earning money so i think it depends on how much capital capital you have available and whether you're patient enough to start fresh start brand new and work through you know the first 6 months to a year where you're learning all the mechanics of starting a site. I don't think you can go wrong either way though. The huge value is if you try to build a new site and, you know, you go through roughly, you know, 12 weeks, six months, something like that, where you're putting in the time, maybe you buy a site after you've gone through that building from new process. And if you do that, you'll know how to do a lot more things on a site that you buy. So if you have the time and you have the capital, I would probably do both of them. And finally, buying to grow an existing business. So again, I sort of alluded to this and business is a it's a broad term, but I'm just going to pretend like you mean an online business. So I would say if you have a website that is, you know, fledgling Maybe it's getting a little bit of traffic. Maybe you're earning a little bit of money. Maybe you're earning a lot of money. Buying an existing business and merging them together can be a great way to really just fast forward the process and do a little time traveling. That's what I'm doing. Most likely, um, the site that I'm going to buy in the next several weeks here, I have a a site in that niche already. There's content on this uh, site that I'm gonna purchase. It gets a little bit of traffic. I think it earns a little bit of money. It's all original content directly in the niche that I'm looking for it has a few backlinks too. So there's, there's some great intrinsic value in that site. So all I need to do is migrate it over. And a few episodes ago, I talked to Shauna Newman and she talked about how she acquires sites for the content If there's any links, it's just, you know, icing on top and she will migrate the content over and basically a 301 redirect certain pieces of content from the old site, the one she purchases over to the the new site where, you know, the new content is going to live. So pretty straightforward process. It can be a little tedious if the site's very big. You do have to deal with these sort of, uh, you know, one post at a time, but like anything, if you just put the time in, create a plan. Even if you're buying a site with hundreds of posts, you can work through it and essentially, you know, I mean, eventually finish. Right? <laughs> eventually, you'll get done as long as you do a little bit of the work each day and make a little progress. So, thanks again, Stephen. This was uh, hopefully an informative show. I'm a, I'm not sick, but I'm a little under the weather, a little tired. So hopefully, I didn't ramble on too much. I waited. I waited this whole time to tell you that, but you probably knew I'm just talking a little bit slower today. So if you have questions um, or if you have answers to some of the questions that Steven answered where you're like, you know what? I disagree with you, Doug. I want to add my two cents in here. Feedback at Doug.show. Feel free to shoot me a voicemail as well. There's a link and phone number in the uh, show notes here. So you can just check it out. So I think I'm just gonna end it here. We'll catch you on the next episode. luck. All you have to do is go to nichesiteproject.com, click the green button, enter your name and email address, and I'll send you a bunch of cool stuff about affiliate marketing, productivity, including all my templates. If you happen to not be subscribed to this podcast, please do subscribe. And don't forget. I welcome your questions. So you could send uh, your emails to feedback at doug.show. I got that really cool domain, doug.show. That's it. So feedback at doug.show. Or I'm going to leave my voicemail number in the show notes. So all you have to do is give me a buzz, leave a voicemail, and then I'll potentially put you on the air. So looking forward to it, and we'll catch you next time.